0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is Published or Not. I really admire short story writers. So many beginnings and endings. So many characters. And Else Fitzgerald has done it brilliantly. In everything feels like the end of the world. Welcome, Else. Thanks so much for having me. There are over 20 short stories that differ in length from a number of pages to a single paragraph. But there is a topic that connects them all. Yep. <laughs>
2: yeah, they're all um, stories about climate change and emerging technologies, so kind of exploring possible futures of how things might go.
1: The earlier ones are in Australia that we, that we know, a quote, the river slunk by us that summer. And another of the heartbreak of having to kill a child's pet guinea pig. Why?
2: Uh, Just that kind of, I remember that from when we were kids, the sort of desperation that you get to when uh, the environment around you becomes so hostile because of environmental catastrophe. So, yeah, that kind of um, triage that you sometimes have to
1: do. In this
2: drought of no
1: water, the fruit trees won't reproduce. There's infertility of the land and the inability to conceive. So let's hear from Alice Fitzgerald from page 62.
2: The doctor had said, it's not your fault, pointing to the declining fertility rates globally, pesticides, petrochemicals, microplastics in the blood, and the interventions don't always work. Medically, rationally, she knew that it was true, but she still had that word in her head, that damaged little whisper that said, barren.
1: But another story, Lo gets pregnant with Finn. What's their decision?
2: They end up deciding not to keep the child, uh, just sort of due to that same environmental catastrophe we spoke about just now. Um, They're living on a farm in rural Victoria, and it's really hard kind of financially and emotionally for them to continue with a pregnancy.
1: And in yet another story, this choice of having a baby, being child free. Let's hear it from page 43.
2: He wonders if people choosing to remain child-free will ever be viewed with anything other than a mix of disbelief, pity and occasional hostility. Despite everything, people still still seem to view having children as some kind of imperative, a responsibility.
1: Mm. The decisions come through the story strongly, but without children, your own history becomes irrelevant, or is it no kids, no hope for the future? So what about the young adults? Do they have hope? And this is where the title story, Everything Feels Like the End of the World, is taken. So where and how are these young adults living?
2: So this story is kind of set in a slightly future Melbourne um, when the climate catastrophe escalated somewhat from where we're at now. Um, but a lot of it's also drawn from my experience of living in the city in my early 20s when I think you you sort of have this very kind of nihilistic, invincible feeling about yourself and your friendship group kind of becomes everything to you at that time. And then these young people are sort of grappling with the fact that they feel like they don't have much of a future ahead of them. So they're sort of really living in that hedonistic space of um, it's all for the now.
1: Yeah. This is a city life... We may recognise share, the share house and then the stories move into the future where floods are unimaginable. Not just a hurricane, but a hypercane. Mm. Your word, else.
2: Yeah, I feel like I possibly have read that phrase in another spec
1: fic, but I wouldn't remember exactly where. And this hypercane, quote, in Melbourne, storm surges impede the Yarra Barrier seawall repairs with flooding affecting the CBD and docklands areas. So what are the problems associated with too much water? Yeah,
2: it's a really tricky thing, I think, particularly in this country, because we associate it so much with drought and sort of this Mm -hmm. arid, you know, Australian landscape. But um, I think rising sea levels are going to be such a huge issue. And they're not not only kind of in the future, it is already affecting some parts of the world. Um, And I think particularly Melbourne, parts of Melbourne are very low lying to sea level. So it'll be... Yeah, kind of how we adapt to that sort of inundation is going to be really interesting, I think.
1: And of course, with the flood waters, we get contamination, mm-hmm. dengue fever, malaria, and you can't trust the water. So rather than river rights, there's the rights to the bore water, mm. which are being fought over. Oh, dear. Flooding in Yarra Town, this is another quote, the sea straining between skyscrapers threads of life lingering like hair in a drain but people are adapting to this watery life and still there's the delight of a baby being born now this is up on the 14th floor because everything below that is submerged Mm. but what what's the delight about this baby being born I think in um, quite a few
2: of the stories that's sort of the hopeful thread is that even though things are getting so bad in some of these future scenarios, you know, kind of life does go on and the, even though they're set against this real sort of environmental disaster, at the heart of each of the stories I feel like they're about characters kind of loving each other through it all. Um, and, the ch- yeah, children are such a strong thread throughout a lot of them about um, kind of having that optimism that things will, will be
1: okay in some way. So everyone wants to get to higher ground, but without borders, there's no functioning government and there's the problem of refugees mm. within Australia. Yeah,
2: I think that's going to be a really kind of critical issue that, you know, we, we tend to think of kind of migration on that level is is always an external thing coming into a country but in a place like Australia and you know you see it across the US as well that the idea of a kind of climate refugee will become a real thing these places will just become uninhabitable and you sort of you know where do where do those people go and how Mm -hmm. do we we have such a duty of care particularly if it's in in our own country Um, I just think there's so much there and how we respond to that.
1: And of course responses, there are protests, there's riots, there's all of these things. And I, I particularly liked one that took, you know, all of these big problems but she brought them to her own self. And there there are islands and cultures disappearing one woman wanted to visit or remember them but can't. So what does she do to her body? Oh, uh,
2: She gets a tattoo of all these island nations on her body so she can remember what the, these drowning coastlines looked like before <laughs> they went under. And her partner finds
1: that very morbid. but yeah. <laughs> I thought that was very clever. <laughs> Thank you. There are preppers now. Mm. I think everybody understands what a prepper is. And uh, communal livers enforcing their own security And with increasing technology, they're taking a foothold of the stories that go even more into the future. We have that continual news feed Mm. of disasters coming through. But entertainment, and this takes us into a completely different way, a new reality show. Tell us about that one.
2: Yeah, that one, the program in this story is called Mind Terror and it's basically kind of a combination of Survivor and The Hunger Games where you have to compete in virtual reality but it goes horribly awry for the
1: contestants. And just what we do for good ratings. Mm. (laughs) Now we move on for more forward to avatars. Well, we know about those in computer games but what if they take over? One avatar wants custody in a will what does the avatar want yeah
2: that story is kind of um, quite strange but interesting to me it's it's sort of about digital consciousness and what full mind uploading might look like if you could kind of replicate yourself digitally and in the story the digital replication sort of ends up having its own autonomy and then they have a custody battle over who the memories belong to
1: the memories yes But still there's the desire for a sim to have a baby. Now, why is that illegal?
2: I think in that story it's kind of that, it's a few of the later stories in the book deal with population control um, and that one particularly is very rigid around class and financial access to reproduction and it looks a lot at kind of genetic manipulation in what, yeah, how we kind of would hybridise with technology and different genetic advancements Mm. and the character in that story really wants their own child but isn't allowed to have one
1: well away from the cities some have been genetically adapted to be free from the need of water and others are living in a society where the birth of a child calls for the gifting ceremony
2: yeah i love that story i think that's probably my favorite one even though it's slightly grim um, yeah, that idea. I think that story is the kind of idea of it is it's like one in, one out that you have to keep balance. So when some when a new baby's about to be born, somebody needs to make um, room. <laughs> mm.
1: Well, the earth is ruined, but if you have enough money for a ticket, where can you go?
2: Uh, yeah the off-world colonies such a terrible idea isn't it but you know I think if Elon Musk gets his way that's where
1: we will be heading and I love what you call these these ships that go there the arcs yeah (laughs) now Elspeth Fitzgerald you won the Rochelle Prize for an unpublished manuscript for this one well done congratulations yeah that was really kind of turning point I think for the book How many edits did you have to do before publishing?
2: Um, Quite a few. Well, I was really lucky. So the Rochelle Prize is um, run by Hachette Australia and um, they give as part of that prize a publishing mentorship. So I got to work with someone for a year to work on kind of the ideas of the book and then I later signed um, a contract and did, I think, so many edits, (laughs) which is good.
1: You never want there to not be enough. (laughs) Well, let's hear a little bit more about about one of the characters in the book from page 100 because I think this character might be a little like yourself.
2: How was your day? Productive? Yeah, it was okay. I'm lying, but she's already giving up so much, working so hard that I don't know what else to say. The truth is I haven't written anything worthwhile for months. I just spend my days sitting here watching the light play over the wall hour after hour trying not to collapse under the terror of it all, trying to write when all I feel is empty, exhausted and sad in a way I've never known before, wrestling with myself, torn between the privilege and the futility of writing while watching our home sinking around me.
1: Mm. Well, in the acknowledgments, you even write yourself that you wrestle with so much grief and anger and horror and exhaustion about the climate. Did you find writing was a creative release?
2: Yeah, it definitely was in some ways. I think a lot of this stories I found quite cathartic to, to write and... It, it was a very difficult book to write because it is, uh, even though there is hope and love in the stories, it is a lot about grief and kind of this sort of collapse that's happening throughout the progression of the timeline. But, yeah, I definitely did find it helpful to be able to articulate some of that anxiety and terror into a book. I just hope it doesn't uh, terrify
1: everybody else who reads it. Alice Fitzgerald has written over 20 connected short stories through The Grief of Drought, Fire and Floods and into the uncertain future where humans have become genetically adapted to cope, but what about their own desires and hopes in everything feels like the end of the world?
2: Thank you, Els. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks, Jan. Well, you're in the, into the future. I'm into the past with Jock Sorong's latest novel, Settlement. Jock Sorong once again takes us into Australia's early past with his latest novel, the settlement. So, Jock, welcome back to 3CR. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. George Augustus Robinson. Can you set the scene for us, Tasmania, George Augustus Robinson and what happened there?
3: The... Rough sketch of the history, and, and most people know some part of it, um, is that the Tasmanian Aboriginal peoples, the Palawa and Pakana people, were being um, decimated by settlers in the 1820s, and Robinson approached the governor with this plan to gather the survivors and take them to some kind of refuge. He wanted money for this. It was a commercial venture. It was also an intrinsically religious venture. So Robinson went out into the bush with a party of Aboriginal people, one of whom was the great chief Manalagena, and one of whom was Truganini, and they went out gathering survivors and negotiating truces and bringing them in, and it was all done a little bit on the fly. Robinson didn't have an end game. He didn't know where he was going to take these people at first, and to cut a long story short, they wound up on Flinders Island in the early 1830s. There was a settlement there that lasted until 1847, and that settlement on any analysis was a disaster. But Robinson He kept a journal. He kept a journal. And in fact, he kept journals of the walks in Tasmania and also of the 14 years that Waibolina operated, he ran it as the commandant for uh, about four years and he kept a journal of that period as well. And there was a historian in the 80s called Plomley who gathered up all of the handwritten papers from the Mitchell Library and transcribed them and added all of these supplementary sources and created these enormous books of the journals.
0: But it's an incredible insight into
3: early Australia, early Australian attitudes, European settlement, all of these sorts of things. Yeah, it is both a first-person account of what went on, but it's also a deep psychological insight into a man who would do such a thing. This
0: then leads us to the novel, which is a fictionalisation of that experience. And one of the first things to note is you don't actually give... George Augustus Robinson a name, you call him the Commandant. And in fact, all the European characters have a title, the Catechist, the Surgeon, the Surveyor.
3: Over the 14-year life of the settlement, several people held those positions. So there were about nine Commandants, there were several Surgeons, there were several Catechists and Storekeepers and so on. I wanted to merge the holders of those offices into one character to try to sort of typify the people they were. But the bigger point, I think, is that in any colonial enterprise, the power of naming people and places is a great and terrible power. And all over Australia, European settlers were choosing to name Aboriginal people. And that's an insult at so many levels. And Robinson was very fond of doing it. And he named lots of people and took away their traditional names and called people, you know, King William or Queen Adelaide.
0: But calling Europeans commandant catechist also typifies them in terms of a sort of mentality and thinking. Yes. And the most obnoxious one, of course, is... The catechist.
3: Yes, yes, and and readers of um, Preservation and the Burning Island may recognise the catechist. You know, all the sources that I've read over the years in fiction and non-fiction, they tend to do the reverse to Aboriginal people. They tend to treat them generically. So here was an experiment in flipping that over and seeing how it looked. But the catechist. The word is harsh in and of itself, and that
0: imposition of that religious mentality, we're doing this for your own good and pray to God.
3: Yeah, at the settlement, the catechist occupied an interesting role because they used a model, the name of which escapes me, but it was a Protestant model whereby the congregation would teach each other the scriptures. Um, But his influence, or the influence of the several catechists over the life of the settlement, was profound yeah and and it's a, as much as it's a providing of religious treatment it's also a stripping away of what was there before that
0: yeah the imposition of yeah.
3: european religious thinking which sort of
0: denies aboriginal culture
3: yes yeah and and the practical measures that went with that were taking amulets off people preventing the use of language and of song controlling burial practices, which are so important to Indigenous people everywhere, and all the way up to the the thieving of body parts. Well, you've got the surgeon, and ostensibly
0: he's sort of trying to help, but he's, in in his mind, and even in the commandant's mind, is taking body parts to send back to England or for museums, preservation of culture, and, well, we see it today as warped thinking.
3: Yes, and, and the surgeon that, that I've described in this novel is uh, a cynical pragmatist, and he's there to advance his own career. Um, It's interesting that when I started out, I thought, if hundreds of people have died of the same handful of respiratory diseases, then the medical care must have been awful. Um, There were researchers I spoke to who put this differently and said, no, this was the best of medical care. It's just that it wasn't very advanced and they had no idea what was going wrong. But autopsies to see what was going wrong. Yes. And Robinson had a real thing about going to the autopsies, which I, I have not got to the bottom of. But he went to every one of them and he wrote his own notes on each of the autopsies. And they appear in the Plomley books. But it's a violation. It is. And and indeed, if you look at William Lanny, who, he was the youngest child of the last family to go to wyberlina And when he arrived, he was seven. And Robinson says his, his traditional name is Lost. Now, that's an impossibility for starters, because he was with his parents. But when, when Robinson says Lost, what he means is we didn't bother recording it. So Robinson calls him William Lanny, And at the end of Lanny's life, he lived a fairly long life by the standards of the time. By the end of Lanny's life, he knew they were going to dismember him when he died. And he begged people not to do it to him. And they did it to him. Mm. So he lost his name at the start of his life and his body at the end. We'll come back to the burial because you get to the burial of Manalagana at the end
0: of this novel. But in between, you've got some incredible imagery. One I'd like to pick up on, the bullock driver, Mm. a convict... It has a formal jacket on whipping bullocks into exhaustion. But I think it
3: has a deeper resonance in terms of what the British were doing. Yeah, it's classically Sisyphean, isn't it? And and it comes directly out of Robinson's journals that there was such a convict and there was a bullock dray and that at times of higher demand, when people would visit, he would go to the bullock driver and say, listen, I need more water. And this would have been some sort of tin tank on a cart that would have been enormously heavy. And in fact, there was a local who took me through the scrub near Weiberlina to the water source. And if you get down low and you look through the scrub, you can actually see this indentation in the land. It's still there with this faint furrow that leads up towards where the settlement is. But what's curious is
0: this convict has no authority. He's been stripped of any sort of rank, title, position, social status, he's still got to wear a jacket, and all he can do is sort of impose a a form of physical
3: torture almost on the bullocks, which is tantamount to what the British were doing. Yes, and it's also a metaphor for the wider penal experiment in that there's no fence, there's no barbed wire, it's an open-air prison. Everyone, in theory, could leave. Um, So the the futility and and the awful sense of claustrophobia, I think, is is really captured in him as a character.
0: Uh, Rocks for building. And uh, there's an interesting contrast here, you know, the sort of European idea of uh, established and uh, very structured lines. And yet you've got in this rubble of rock that's for the buildings, life going on
3: underneath. Now, there's a bit to this because I, over a number of summers, have been building a rock wall on Flinders Island. And it gets hot in the afternoons and there always comes a point where I start thinking, gee, I really wouldn't mind just putting this down and going and getting a cold beer. Well, the storekeeper
0: is having difficulty in his marriage, but, yep. you know, the underlying uh, sort of backdrop as to why he needs to do this. And again, it can be applied to European settlement and thinking uh, as well. Um there's a heart-wrenching pathos in some of the situations you describe. You have two very young characters, Pippi and Welk, and the use of children to sort of basically... It accentuates
3: the trauma and the sadness. Mm, there is there's an enormous physical and, and emotional fragility about writing children into these environments. And I suppose one of the things I had to think about early on in planning this book was how do you successfully convey the horror of what this settlement represented without being too gratuitous about the violence of it? And I think one of the ways that you can do it is to work with, yeah, the way that children are vulnerable in these in these environments, these, these human collectives. Um, and so Pippi and Welk, also represent the rootlessness of having lost their culture, lost their parents. Um, There were so many children dislocated in this experiment of of Robinsons, and I I think that speaks a lot about what was done to Aboriginal cultures, that um, once you take away names, once you take children from their environment and their people, and Um, Welk's a great talker and he's quite garrulous around the old Aboriginal people and he asks people, you know, who were my people and what were my songs or what was my country? And he never quite gets a straight answer and I think that must have been a terrible burden to a child, to any person, to have that happen to them.
0: But also then there is abuse of a variety of forms of uh, nature that take place uh, that is perpetuated on these two uh, children, which is is heart wrenching,
3: basically. Yeah, it is, and and that came from an autopsy record of Robinson's, which indicated physical evidence of abuse on, on a child who had died. And he simply writes it and moves on. You know that that there were problems with the lungs, and there was this other evidence on the body. Um, yeah. And and I couldn't, when I found that, looking for something else, I couldn't believe the callousness of the reference. Um, that it was just like another defect in the body. And um, I really wanted to alert the reader to the fact that this was going on without that becoming a, a central depiction of violence because I think that's just a bridge too far.
0: The ending of the book really is the Commandant and uh, Manalagena. Uh, is dying, there's a funeral, etc. And uh,
3: the Commandant believes he's done the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, all the way through to him politicizing the very notion of heaven. He Manelagena says to him and this bear in mind this is me speculating about what their final conversation might have been, but Manelagena says to him don't you go telling people I'm going to your Christian heaven because I'm not. I'm going back to my country and The next scene we have Robinson giving a a funeral oration saying, the last thing my friend said to me was that he's heading to heaven and that that makes him happy. But it also highlights the difference in thinking, earth and
0: heaven, and, and the way two different cultures saw what their final resting place should be in many ways.
3: Yes, and again you come back to the notion of the losses, you know, that not only can we take names and language and song and country off people, we can take the very notion of what your afterlife is off you. This is what the novel does so effectively, is to highlight the
0: disconnection, the dispossession that has taken place at every level. Um, but you then really have to question European settlement. Is it a question Australia has faced enough and
3: is capable of facing? The importance here is not what happened, but what continues to happen. And we've got better at coming to terms with physical violence, with with massacres. And I think we have got better at coming to terms with that. I think we're still not particularly good at acknowledging the damage that's been done just through sheer paternalism. But it seems to be a perpetual cycle. It does. But the fact that we have as I say, got better at reckoning with colonial violence means that we can get better at reckoning with this as well, that it's an ongoing project? Well, if the
0: uh, reader and listener uh, want to find out more, The Settlement by Jock Serong goes into the very heart of that dispossession and it's a text publishing release. So, Jock, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thanks, David. It's great to be here.
1: So as you said, you were in the past and I was in the future with Al Fitzgerald and everything feels like the end of the world.
0: You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.